This is the LexisNexis California Legal News Podcast. Litigation news stories from recent issues of LexisNexis, Mealy's Publications. Current and targeted legal news and litigation reports. LexisNexis Podcast, voted top legal-oriented podcast in the 2008 ABA Journal Blog 100. The annual reader survey of the best websites for lawyers, as chosen by the editors of the ABA Journal. By a 6-1 to vote, the California Supreme Court on May 28th rejected a constitutional challenge to Proposition 8, the measure adopted by voters in late 2008 that added a section to the California Constitution providing only marriage between a man and a woman is valid or recognized in the state. The challenges were filed by numerous same-sex couples and public entities. The court said the scope of Proposition 8 was narrow and limited solely to restricting the use of the term marriage, to opposite-sex couples. While not otherwise affecting the fundamental constitutional rights of same-sex couples described in an earlier 2008 opinion. The court also unanimously held that the new constitutional provision applies only prospectively and does not affect the continued validity of the estimated 18,000 marriages of same-sex couples that occurred before November 5, 2008 when the new constitutional provision took effect. The state Supreme Court on June 1st found a bank's practice of recouping overdrafts and non-sufficient fund fees from subsequently deposited public benefits is not unlawful. Account holders who deposited Social Security or other public benefit funds into accounts and then overdrew those accounts argued Bank of America cannot recoup the overdrawn amounts and charge fees for insufficient funds for each transaction that results in an overdraft. The court took note of a 1974 case in which it held that a bank may not satisfy a credit card debt by deducting the amount owed from a separate checking account containing deposits that derived from unemployment and disability benefits. In 1975, the state legislature enacted Financial Code Section 864, which expressly excludes overdrafts and bank charges from the statute's definition of debt. The court held that Bank of America's practice does not run afoul of its holding in the earlier case, because the current case does not involve set-off of independent debt. It also held Bank of America's practice of recouping overdrafts and charging insufficient funds fees is permissible in light of Section 864's statement that overdrafts and bank charges are not debts and therefore not subject to limitations placed on a bank's right of set-off set forth in the statute. A divided state Supreme Court held May 18th that Proposition 64 requires neither class-wide reliance in representative actions nor the demand exposed to a long-term cigarette advertising campaign, plead with an unrealistic degree of specificity the alleged misrepresentation that caused his injury. The court said nothing in the initiative's language or the ballot materials supported the idea of class-wide reliance and unfair competition law, Business and Professions Code Section 17200 claims. The California Supreme Court accepted review of the case after the 4th District Court of Appeal affirmed a decision decertifying an unfair competition law class action brought by Willard Brown and others in San Diego County Superior Court against various tobacco companies. Brown alleged the companies made false and misleading statements regarding the health hazards and addictiveness of smoking. The court also noted that Prop 64's language involving those who wish to pursue UCL claims is in the singular, referring to person and claimant. The court said, quote, the conclusion that must be drawn from these words is that only this individual, the representative plaintiff, is required to meet the standing requirements, end quote. 
the court said class-wide reliance is not necessary to address the abuses that Prop 64 sought to end. The court said the fact that Prop 64 left remedy provisions of the UCL unchanged, as well as the fact that class-wide reliance would prevent the UCL from protecting consumers, also supported its conclusion. The court held that plaintiffs must show that the alleged misrepresentation was an immediate cause, but need not show that it was the only cause of the injury-producing conduct. Nor, the court said, is individualized reliance on a specific misrepresentation necessary to satisfy the reliance requirement. Quote, where, as here, a plaintiff alleges exposure to a long-term advertising campaign, the plaintiff is not required to plead with an unrealistic degree of specificity that the plaintiff relied on particular advertisements or statements, end quote. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Mealy's California Section 17200 Publication Editor, Brian Redding. The Fourth Department California Court of Appeal has reversed a ruling that awarded millions of dollars in restitution to Starbucks baristas, finding a trial court erred in finding the company's tip allocation policy violated state law. The class action challenged Starbucks policy that allowed shift supervisors to share in tips that customers put in a collective tip box. A San Diego County Superior Court judge awarded the class, which consisted of current and former Starbucks baristas, $86 million in restitution and another $20 million in interest. The Court of Appeal found applicable statutes do not prohibit Starbucks from permitting shift supervisors to share in the proceeds placed in the collective tip containers. The appeals court explained that the trial court's ruling was improperly based on a series of decisions involving an employer's authority to mandate that a tip given to an individual service employee must be shared with other employees. The policy challenged here, it said, concerns an employer's authority to require equitable allocation of tips placed in a collective tip box for employees providing service to the customer. There's no decisional or statutory authority, the court said, prohibiting an employer from allowing a service employee to keep a portion of the collective tip in proportion to the amount of hours worked merely because the employee also has limited supervisory duties. A state appeals panel in late May found a trial judge erred in dismissing claims for fraud and deceit against an insurance broker regarding the broker's alleged failure to disclose that the claims history of an acquired asset would be used in setting the premium for workers' compensation insurance. Sullivan's Stone Factory sued State Compensation Insurance Fund and its insurance broker, asserting claims for fraud, deceit, concealment, negligence, and bad faith. After Sullivan Stone acquired the assets of Cortima Company and obtained workers' compensation insurance, it alleged the broker intentionally failed to disclose the effect that Cortima's claims history would have in the insurer's setting of the premium. A Riverside County Superior Court dismissed the complaint, finding the defendants could not be liable for concealing the effect of publicly available administrative regulations. The court also ruled that Sullivan Stone was required to have workers' comp insurance, and thus it could not claim to have relied in any way on the alleged non-disclosure. Reversing the trial judge's dismissal of the fraud and deceit claims, the California Fourth District Court of Appeal found that Sullivan sufficiently established a duty to disclose. The panel noted that for a duty of disclosure, it's not necessary that the undisclosed information be literally inaccessible to the plaintiff, but rather only necessary that the defendant's access to it be superior to the plaintiff's access. However, the appeals court found that the broker cannot be liable for statutory concealment because it was not a party to the policy. A San Francisco jury on May 18th awarded the city of Modesto $320,000 to investigate and $18 million to clean up 
perchlorethylene contamination from dry cleaning operations. That in the second phase of a decade-old litigation against the manufacturers of dry cleaning fluids and machines. The jury deliberated a month at the conclusion of the trial, which began back in September. Podesto alleged pollution liability claims against Dow Chemical Company, PPG Industries, and R&R Street and Company. The jury said the evidence supports the conclusion that the defendants failed to warn of the potential risks of perchlorethylene dry cleaning fluids. The R&R Street and PPG were found not to be liable for failing to warn. The jury said dry cleaning fluids produced by the companies were defective by design as delivered to the dry cleaning establishments. The jury said the city failed to show that Dow acted with malice, therefore foreclosing the possibility of awarding punitive damages. The Second District Court of Appeal in May denied Cranko's petition challenging what a judge referred to as a law firm's game of filing in Texas and then in California to take advantage of each state's rules. Helen and John Washington sued a number of companies in Texas, alleging their conduct caused John Washington's asbestos exposure and subsequent mesothelioma. They claim he was exposed to asbestos-containing gaskets during the time he was employed in boiler rooms at a Harbor City, California high school. After John Washington's deposition was taken, the Washingtons dismissed the Texas action and filed in Los Angeles County Superior Court. Defendant Cranko moved for summary judgment and to exclude Washington's deposition testimony. In April, a Superior Court judge reluctantly denied Cranko's motion. However, Judge Aurelio Munez said, quote, this court does not have the authority to summarily prohibit the use of otherwise admissible testimony, even if the court does not approve of the games, and they are games, that are being played, end quote. Judge Munez criticized the taking of deposition in Texas and then refiling in California as an intentional move. In its petition for writ of mandate, Cranko argued that the issue is widespread and increasingly important given the number of claims filed in California. The company said because it did not have the same opportunity at the deposition under Texas law that it would have under California law, the deposition should be inadmissible. Cranko pointed out that the deposition occurred before it had any chance to conduct discovery and before Washington provided any substantive information about the claim against it. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Mealy's Asbestos Litigation Report Editor, Brian Redding. A state court judge in early May granted a preliminary injunction barring Shasta Union High School District from continuing to randomly test students participating in competitive representational activities for drugs. After the school district began requiring random drug testing of students involved in such activities, the American Civil Liberties Union of Northern California filed suit on behalf of a group of students alleging their right to privacy was being violated. Plaintiffs also moved for a preliminary injunction. Granting the motion, Shasta County Superior Court Judge Monica Marlowe said although the school district had a right to be concerned about drug use, the way it was carrying out the policy appeared to be incorrect. She said the concern could not be limited to students participating in targeted activities. She found no evidence of why drug testing is required of students participating in the targeted activities, but not required of students participating in regular curricular activities which present the same circumstances giving rise to the district's legitimate concern of drug use. Therefore, the judge said, quote, this court fails to see the justification for the invasion of privacy of students engaging in the targeted activities when that same privacy invasion, even if arguably negligible rather than serious, is not imposed upon similarly situated students. A former University of Nebraska quarterback has filed a class action lawsuit in federal court in San Francisco challenging video game maker Electronic Arts' use of the names and likenesses of college athletes in its products. 
Samuel Keller claims Electronic Arts profits from using the names and likenesses of current and former college athletes in both its basketball and football video games. Keller claims the NCAA bylaws prohibit the use of names and likenesses of athletes for commercial purposes. The NCAA has said its agreement with Electronic Arts prohibits the use of names and pictures of current student-athletes in their video games. The plaintiff claims that though names are not visible on players' jerseys in the games, Electronic Arts intentionally circumvents prohibitions on using student-athletes' names by allowing users to upload entire team rosters, which include names and other biographical information, directly into the game. Keller seeks to represent a class of all NCAA football and basketball players listed on the official opening day roster of a school whose team was included in any interactive software produced by Electronic Arts and whose assigned jersey number appears on a virtual player in the software. A California woman claims the maker of Cheerios makes health claims about the cereal's cholesterol-lowering properties that violate federal food labeling law by qualifying it as a drug. In a putative unfair competition law class action filed in federal court in Sacramento in mid-May, the woman notes the FDA warned General Mills on May 5th that the labeling on Cheerios toasted whole grain oat cereal violates the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. She alleges boxes of whole grain Cheerios she bought include the claims that it can lower your cholesterol 4% in six weeks. The plaintiff says the FDA concluded that such labeling indicates Cheerios is intended for use as a cholesterol-lowering agent. She alleges General Mills' conduct is deceptive, unfair, and unlawful, false advertising under the UCL, and constitutes fraudulent concealment, negligent misrepresentation, and intentional misrepresentation. Meanwhile, a federal judge on May 20th dismissed a couple of unfair competition law class action lawsuits against cereal makers. A case against PepsiCo alleged deceptive marketing of Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries and that the product doesn't contain berries of any kind. PepsiCo, which merged with Quaker Oats in 2001, moved for dismissal. Judge Morrison England Jr. granted the motion, noting that the defendant did not promise the product contained fruit. Judge England wrote, The defendant chose the moniker Crunch Berries for its brightly colored cereal balls. As far as this court has been made aware, there is no such fruit growing in the wild or occurring naturally in any part of the world. Furthermore, a reasonable consumer would have understood the product packaging to expressly warrant only that the product contains sweetened corn and oat cereal, which it did. That same day, Judge England dismissed a similar action in which a man claimed Kellogg's misled him into believing Fruit Loop cereal was made with healthy ingredients, ruling that it was obvious that the product did not contain fruit. In granting Kellogg's motion to dismiss, Judge England noted the Fruit Loop packaging makes clear that the product is a multigrain cereal and shows cereal rings that do not resemble fruit. Moreover, he said Kellogg's spelling of the word fruit, F-R-O-O-T, as part of its trademark name, and the fanciful use of a nonsensical word, cannot reasonably be interpreted to imply that the product contains or is made from actual fruit. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Mike Butler. If you'd like more information on these and other California cases, visit www.lexisnexis.com slash mealies, M-E-A-L-E-Y-S, or totallitigator.com. LexisNexis Legal News California is written by the editors of LexisNexis Mealy Publications, current and targeted legal news and litigation reports. The LexisNexis California Legal News Podcast, copyright 2009 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis, total practice solutions. I'm Steve Bursler. Thank you for listening.